Okay. I just want to give you my own welcome if you're visiting. <laughs> if you're visiting, it's wonderful to see you. I know I've spoken to a number of visitors this morning already, but if I haven't had the chance already, welcome. We're so glad that you chose to spend your Sunday morning with us. We've got a few really close friends here with us. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you for coming. Um, it's always a commitment when international guests turn up on Sunday. We struggle to turn up at 10 a.m. if we live in the city of Boston, but you know, when international guests turn up, uh, I feel like that's another commitment. Although I have been hearing of some people driving all the way from New Hampshire on a Sunday morning. So I just want to say how amazing, absolutely incredible autumn. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, we're doing a series at the moment on our values. And I love that because we just get to revisit what makes us us. We're a church family, you know, there's, there's pretty essential ingredients in the Bible that we're not going to play around with. We, we know that. But what makes the table, the unique expression of the kingdom of God come to Boston? Well, what is it that makes us us? And today we're going to be talking all about openness. And I'm going to explain this in a moment. If you've ever had a chance to look on our website, you might have read a little bit more about what this means. But I'll explain it through the course of this sermon. But before I get there, uh, are there any baking fans in the house, or more specifically, fans of baking shows? Yes. <laughs> yes. Praise the Lord for baking shows. If I ever borrow your Netflix account, I will mess up your algorithm with baking shows. I just want to tell you that. You will suddenly find yourself being recommended all sorts of baking shows. They're my favorite, and I love watching it with the kids. The kids have become baking connoisseurs as a five and a six-year-old, um, and they will very much adopt the expression of judges on baking shows when they try any baked goods now. Hmm, it's a little bit dry. I would add a little bit as if they know what they're talking about. Yesterday, I um, decided to bake a cake, and um, there are two different kinds of bakers in the world. I, I like to think I'm the more creative variety. <laughs> There are those who look at the recipe and recognize that baking is a science, and if you mess about with it, you're not gonna come out with the desired effect. Then there are people like me, who like to bend the laws of science, and who think when it says buttermilk, does it need to be buttermilk, or can it just be milk? And I horrify my husband, who is of the scientific variety of bakers, when I say things like that out loud, because he knows what's coming, which is probably going to be a cake that doesn't really resemble the cake in the picture, not because I don't have icing skills, but because I messed with the science. But I like messing with the science, what can I say? But if I give you a recipe of some well-known cakes or desserts, if I told you a few ingredients, many who've tried the, even if I didn't tell you what I was making, but many who've tried a dessert with those ingredients would know immediately, oh, this is what she's talking about, especially if you're passionate about baking. So if I said something like the ingredients for my cake today include cherries and include almonds and include cream and include chocolate, you might be thinking of a Black Forest gateau if you're someone who enjoys baking because those are the essential ingredients that just go in every single one of those. Or if I said to you that I was 
going to get a pie base and some custard and some lemons. You might be thinking of some kind of lemon tart, or right? Because if I give you the ingredients with something that we're familiar with, we will understand automatically before I've even given you the title of what it is that we're talking about, your brain goes there because of prior experience. Is this making sense to you? Right. So sometimes we become so familiar with what's coming, the end result, that we know what ingredients take to go there, even if we're not the best bakers in the world, which I certainly am not. My children will tell you that because they weighed up my cake very severely yesterday. But we won't talk about that. Thankfully, Jesus is not as judgmental about my cooking as my kids are. But I feel what's happened with scripture, with what God invites us into in living in the kingdom, we've so messed around with the science of the recipe that the world isn't entirely clear what ingredients are needed for the end result. If I said to you, we want to bake freedom today, I wonder how many people would be clear on the ingredients required to lead to freedom. Now we're getting interesting. And it's because for generations we've messed around with the ingredients to the point that no recipe makes sense anymore. Right? If we kept messing about with the recipes in a cooking book over generation after generation after generation, sometimes you find this, that you rediscover or historians rediscover a recipe that was so well known for multiple generations and that got so messed about with that we have nothing that resembles that and no one would be able to think of the ingredients required for that thing. We've not even heard of the thing anymore. That's what the world And dare I say the church is doing with the ingredients of recipes that are old, ancient recipes found in scripture. And we're being invited even in this series on our values to re-look at scripture and allow, I say this often, but allow scripture to be our framework, allow scripture to reframe us, allow scripture to reshape us because I am not the one with the recipe he is. And I might be confused on which ingredients are needed. He is not. And so when we talk about openness this morning, really uh, the value of openness for me is synonymous with finding freedom. That's why we put openness as a value at the table. What we mean by that is no one needs to pretend when they are here and Everyone, if they are willing, will find the route to wholeness. See, the world is trying to create a culture of openness. I feel like we're living in a generation where people are more honest about what's going on on the inside than ever before. And yet somehow that bold honesty isn't leading to wholeness. We're a more broken generation than ever before. Mental illness is shooting through the roof. No matter how much honesty we bring about the stuff that's going on, no matter how much emotional vulnerability you want to bring to the table, no pun intended, no matter how much of that, there there still seems to be internal brokenness coming up all the time that doesn't seem to be stopped or uh, resolved by that emotional honesty, intensity, vulnerability, authenticity, all those buzzwords that are there but are not leading to healing and freedom. Why is that? It's like there is a demand, an insatiable demand 
for openness, for honesty, for show me your true self and bring your true self wherever you are. And yet the brokenness is very real. It's not being healed up by us just talking about it. Because the recipe for freedom and wholeness isn't just put everything out on uh, out for dis- display and demand that other people are okay with it. Yeah. That's not a biblical recipe. The Bible doesn't say be authentic to your true self and make sure everyone's standards are lowered to deal with whatever comes out of you and then you will find wholeness. That's not the recipe that is found here. I'm really preaching this morning. I hope you're okay with this. It's because I'm passionate about us being whole and free. I am fed up of people living in brokenness in and out of the church because we're messing up with the recipe. We're playing around with it because we don't like some of the ingredients and then we're wondering why we're not finding the result that we want. Too many of us as Christians have learned to pretend. Our recipe, different to the world's, our recipe for wholeness and breakthrough is just fake it till you make it. You come into church, you see a sickly sweet smile. I'll say I love you even though all of last week I was telling someone else about how annoying you are. But of course we're in church so you're going to get my fake smile and I'm totally fine. And when someone asks me how this week has been, I'm going to say God is good all the time. Even though yesterday at about 9.30pm I was wondering if God even exists. But we're okay in church. We've got this plastic sheen on us and we're wondering why we're broken inside side because that's not the recipe to wholeness and freedom faking it will not make it so in your heart it will just add to the shame and the brokenness internally the world's recipe is also adding to the shame and brokenness internally that's why the more people talk about it and hope you'll accept it they're finding shame is just growing not reducing why is that Because the antidote to shame isn't forcing everyone to accept everything as okay. The antidote to shame is found in the recipe here. And we're going to look at that together. We're going to look at John 4. I want this church, I dream of this church being a place where people walk in and they find belonging immediately because belonging has got nothing to do with your morality. I dream of people finding acceptance here where they may have felt rejected all of their lives, but they walk into an atmosphere where they know, oh my goodness, even with all of it, I'm part of family here somehow. How is that the case? A dream of a place where people come with their brokenness, but don't stay in their brokenness because within that openness, they find the safety to be honest with themselves, perhaps for the first time in their lives, that this stuff isn't okay. And I don't want to be shackled to it for my whole life. And I dream of an openness for all of us where that will be drawn out of us and find healing because that's what Jesus did to people all of the time. 
There's such a contrast in the Gospels between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees with their plastic veneer of religious behavior because they were dishonest with people about what God is like and they were dishonest with themselves about what they were really like because they believed of themselves a greater morality than that was true and they believed of others lower than that was true because they couldn't see through the eyes of Jesus both about themselves or about others. And then you find Jesus, the Holy One, walking with sinners and suddenly sinners belong. How is that possible? Sinners who ran away from those who were actually not that perfect and yet ran straight to the one who was perfection personified. I wonder if people walk into our church and feel this. Feel that they belong before they have to somehow dress the part and look the part. Oh, it's horrible when you get someone who's reasonably normal from the outside, who suddenly starts becoming like everyone else from the inside, who feels a little bit fake. You're like, what happened in a church community that that's what would be required? We don't want to be that kind of church. That's why my commitment to you is that I'm honest when I preach. I'm going to be honest about the moments in our lives that are painful because here's a clue. Pastors go through pain too. Pastors go through doubt too. Pastors have their own fears too. Church leaders live all the real stuff alongside everybody else. We will be real in this community. But we'll never lower the standard of the recipe to make that the end goal. Realness is not an end in itself. John 4, if you haven't found it yet, to steal one of Julian's phrases, give up. John 4. This is a story that we've read. Hey, Caleb, we love you. Um, this is a story we've read many times as a community, but it, I just couldn't get away. I actually wanted to preach from Zacchaeus today because I don't think we've done that before. But anyway, I can get away from John 4, so let's go to John 4. This is a very simple simple message the recipe for freedom which is the aim of an open community is love plus truth that's it that's if all you need to remember today is that recipe whenever anyone says to you i just want to be free i want that to be triggered in your mind i know the recipe it's love and truth because that's what we find in scripture again and again this is just one story one example of that for our own lives when we're saying to jesus i have this problem and i cannot be free from it which isn't true technically actually because jesus made you free but that's a different theological story we can go but i want to live in the expression of the freedom that you have won for me how do i do it it's love and truth. I need to encounter the love of God afresh. I need to encounter the truth, ultimately the person of Jesus because he is the truth. But it's all his whole life, his whole personality is written here. So if you can't see him physically, read him physically. I need to encounter love and truth and that will set me free. free. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the spirit is love, and the spirit is truth. If you need freedom today, encounter love. Love personified purely. Not a messed up recipe of love, but love personified perfectly. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, <laughs> sometimes we attribute things to God doing them that God isn't doing them. They attributed these baptisms to Jesus. Jesus wasn't the one baptizing anyway, but anyway, that's, that's an aside. Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria being enemy territory for the Jews. Uh, it's funny that it says he had to pass. Uh, geographically, that's technically true because Samaria was in between Galilee and Judea. So if you wanted to go the fastest way, you would go through Samaria. But actually, most Jews went round Samaria. There was no had to go through Samaria in their minds. They went round it because they were avoiding the icky people in Samaria. That's basically what was going on. That's the technical term that John's gospel uses. But he had to pass. There's something driving him. There's something moving him. There's something leading Jesus to behave in a way that is already unusual in comparison to the religious folk of his day. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called uh, Sikar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Already this is radical because Jesus is talking to a woman, which no self-respecting rabbi would do in public. They didn't even talk to their wives in public. He's talking to a woman who he does not know. That is scandalous. That's the sort of thing that gets you set out of the synagogue for good. Jesus is talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan woman, no less. So he's not only talking to a woman, maybe a pious Jewish woman, it'd be embarrassing, but could be explained. Talking to an icky Samaritan woman, that's not gonna be explained easily at all. Funny that Jesus doesn't seem to mind the lines that are drawn against versus us versus them. He doesn't seem to mind them. It's like, oh, is this the person on the other side of the line? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to walk over that line. He, he just doesn't mind. He doesn't care. He's not interested in the boundaries we set up to divide one person against another. He's not interested in how the world does that, and he's certainly not interested in how the church does that. So he talks to this Samaritan woman. Not only does he talk to her, but he asks her for help. I love the way Jesus sets the tone of conversations. This is no religious charity conversation. Because sometimes we do this. Let's take a field trip to, the, to the, the grotty part of town. Of course, I wouldn't want to befriend any of those people. That, that's not going to be my real life. But this is going to be my act of charity. This is my condescension into something. And then I'm going to go back to my real life. J Jesus just doesn't operate like that. He doesn't have that kind of mentality. And I believe he's calling us not to have that mentality at all. The Samaritan, for his disciples, had gone away into the city to buy food. I would have loved to see what they would have said if they had been present. But anyway, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's fully aware 
this is unusual, this is weird, please explain yourself. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water actually was a term that they used to mean some uh, water that had movement. So not a well, but a river or a spring that, that had movement so that it would be uh, perpetually pure. That's, so he's, he's doing a bit of a play on words in what she would understand. Oh, he, he has a river somewhere. Uh, I need to get water from his river. The woman said to him, sir, you've nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Give me the geographical location. Give me the recipe for that living water. I want to find it. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. You could do a whole sermon on how Jesus is greater than, than the patriarchs. Jesus is greater than a prophet. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is great. I love it. Are you greater? Yes, he is. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That which you taste, you then embody so that it flows from you. That's why encountering Jesus for ourselves is so important. The life of a Christian was never meant to be imitating Jesus. It was meant to be tasting of Jesus so that that which we taste and encounter can be birthed in us. You weren't meant to try hard at role play around Jesus. It's not like learn your lines and do it well. This isn't a theater production. Encounter him so that what is true of him will suddenly be birthed in you. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Hmm. Slight change in conversation and come here. The woman answered him, uh, awkward moment, I have no husband, technically true. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, let's quickly change the subject. Sir, I, perce I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. I love that gear change from what's real to what's religious. You've just touched. Ooh, oh, some people are suddenly sorry. But it's true. We do that, don't we? We got too close. So let's shift this to, I was once at a prayer meeting and suddenly we changed the subject from what is actually touching on, what is really going on on the inside that requires healing and transformation because we're getting uncomfortable. But I pray for the table that we will be such a community where we can live out from the discomfort to find healing and wholeness in the context of love and truth. 
Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. We're getting into a whole theological debate that is entirely irrelevant to what's happening. But Jesus goes with it. Do you know how radical it is that Jesus is talking theology with this woman? In fact, when you search the scriptures, there's not that many contexts where Jesus talks theology like this with one person. This is a very unique encounter, both because she was so undeserving and because he delves deep into theology. We don't see him doing this elsewhere. Do you know what makes it even more radical? In his day, there were sayings like, it is better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And you tell me Jesus didn't lift up women to be equal with men. We're not reading our Bibles. He has a theological conversation in the same generation when the rabbis of his day were saying, burn it rather than teach it to women. And he has his deepest theological conversation that we have recorded in the Gospels. Not a hint of patronizing here, her here. Not a hint of condescension. Not a hint of, okay, let me help you, dear. Not a hint of religious charity that makes people feel less worthy rather than lifts them up in dignity. How did the Holy One manage to do this? Oh, but he wants us to encounter him in this way so that we will have rivers of living water that taste like this come out of us so that everyone who walks into this building will not find patronizing Christians who are going to do good to them. Oh, because you're a little bit sad and lonely, but we'll help you. But because we've encountered the one who is embodiment of perfect love and perfect truth, we have so been transformed by that ourselves. So we are able to welcome anybody else in and give them the dignity of real conversation rather than demanding authenticity from then where we are being fake with who we are from the inside out we're not going to be like that because it's nothing like how he is with us he's having this deep conversation he says to her woman believe me he, he's going with it it's totally irrelevant at the moment but anyway Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. I want to worship what I know. That's my son. <laughs> He's getting it. The glory is coming in the kids' room. This for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers, not those who are faking it till they make it, but the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. This is the best setup ever, and she doesn't even know she's the one setting him up. I know that the Messiah is coming, who is, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I'm open to that future date. The thing is, when you're hoping for a prophet or someone who isn't known, when, when you've got a God out there who doesn't have a name, it's very easy to rely on religious catchphrases because there's nothing or no one to pin you down with it. 
That's why often I have conversations with people who are happy to say they believe in God but struggle with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God in the flesh and blood. He's not out there somewhere ethereal so that you can create him in whatever image you like. Jesus, God personified, comes in and says, this is what God is like. You don't get to define me. I rather define you. She's all religious. Oh, one day out there isn't this convenient. You're really pressing on some stuff that I'd rather you not press on. How convenient then that I can wait for. One day the Messiah will come and clear this all up. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. Let's just move on now. And he says, what does he say to her? I who speak to you am he. Whoa. (laughs) Mic drop. (laughs) And suddenly it stops. God out there somewhere, he's like this, to each his own truth, we don't know anyway. Jesus says, here I am. Will you see me? Will you encounter me? Will you allow me to define everything for you? The thing is, Jesus, proven man in history, We can't just say, oh, he was just, maybe he just claimed to be God. He was a really good person. I prefer to think of Jesus as a really good person. He walked around saying he was God. No good person says that (laughs) unless they're mentally unstable and genuinely believe it themselves, right? No good person, if I walked around suddenly saying, okay, guys, this Sunday I have a new revelation for you. Wait for it. I'm super excited. I've just come to tell you all that I am God. No one in this room would start thinking, oh, she's just such a good person. They'd be thinking, we probably need some kind of psychiatric help. Or they'd be thinking, it's gone to her head. She's on an ego boost of note. She is no longer good. She is flipping into evil. So we don't get as inconvenient as Jesus makes it for us by living and existing. We don't get to define him as a good person. He said too much for that to be true. We don't get to go, I believe in a God somewhere. And I know that history does say that this man, Jesus, existed and he claimed what he claimed. This isn't just from biblical resources. This is from sources outside the Bible. We're going into apologetics for a second. Bear with me. But I think it's important to say this. We don't get to define Jesus just as good or just as some kind of 1960s hippie expression of love. That's what, not what he was saying about himself. He was too radical for that. So each of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not, have to decide who he was and you don't get the option of he was good. He's either who he says he is, in which case God is predefined for us by the person of Jesus Christ and we don't get to have some ethereal God who we get to mold with whatever feels good to us because he's personified right here in the person of Jesus, fullness of God, fullness of man. Or we can say he was evil or we can say he's crazy. Those Those are the only options on the table. Those are the only options available to her. She's got to pick one right now. You're looking at the Messiah. She's got about 30 seconds to make the decision. Should I run because he's a psycho? (laughs) We we sanitize these conversations like it's normal. Like she was like, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. Is that how you would react if someone came off the subway, started talking to you and then said, 
by the way, I'm God. That, that's, right? Right? She had to make a decision. Does my life change by this encounter? Or does this become a story of that terrifying time I met that man who was mentally unstable? That when he comes, he will tell us all things, Jesus said. I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples, first time, by the way, he reveals himself as Messiah. Again, don't tell me he is disinterested in empowering women. Just then, his disciples came back, bless him. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. It was awkward, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Probably wise. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and we see what she decided and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And if you read on, she brings back the whole town. The town gets saved as they encounter Jesus. They say to her, a little bit lower down in verse 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. I don't think this, this account will ever stop moving me to tears because it is so radical. And this is the God who is present amongst us today. Love and truth. See, the thing is, this woman enters the story crippled by shame. Why on earth is this woman on her own going to get water in the heat of the day? Because she's embarrassed, because she's ostracized from society. Uh, because what would happen in the culture of the day was the women would go together uh, because they're in the middle of nowhere and there's danger about. They don't just walk all the way to the well on their own. So what they would do, uh, because it was hot in the Middle East, if you've I think most of us can guess that. In the Middle East, just in case you're not aware, I'm an expert on this because I was born in the Middle East, and of course you need to be born there to understand this. The Middle East is hot! <laughs> so no one goes to the well in the middle of the day unless they have a reason to avoid everybody else. This woman is crippled by shame. She's crippled by rejection. She's crippled by her own brokenness. She enters the story as someone who has no belonging anywhere. She's had five husbands. She's lived through five divorces in a culture where the men divorced the women. She knows what it feels like not to belong, not to be wanted, not to be seen as good. She is someone who lives in shame. Do you think it's the first time in her life that someone says to her, we know you've had five husbands and you're not living with the man who is your husband right now? Of course not. She was mocked by society the whole time. So she's living in avoiding everybody who she feels judged by, and yet she finds belonging with the Holy One himself. Doesn't that blow your mind? That she couldn't stomach being near people who were sinners themselves. And yet she finds for the first time peaceful belonging with the one who is the holy of holies. When our churches are uncomfortable places 
for people who don't follow Jesus to walk into because we make people feel like morality is a prerequisite of belonging. We are not being honest with ourselves about our own brokenness or how we found Jesus in the first place. The church was never created to be the morality police of Boston. I want everybody to walk through our doors. Sometimes people ask me things like, what will you feel like if whatever? The, the, the group of people that they feel like is under the most judgment comes in, which is hilarious because all of us have sinned and no sin is bigger than another. So it just shows how faulty our thinking is when we have a group of people who we think in our minds are less worthy than ourselves. Hey, spoiler alert, none of us is worthy. Get over that, let's move on, okay? But people ask me, how would you feel? I would feel wonderful if that group of people were in our building. Are you kidding me? I would feel just like Jesus. I would realize that the, I have tasted of love and truth himself and that spring is starting to flow from me so that other people come and want to belong in a place because they're not being judged, they're not being rejected. The Holy One is where she found belonging. It blows my mind. He had to pass through Samaria. Why? because he's compelled by love in everything he does. You see it in the miracles of Jesus. He's moved by compassion the whole time. Does this story explicitly tell us because he loved her? No, but it tells us everywhere that he loved her. He's there pursuing her. This is no accident. Do you think he didn't realize what was gonna happen when he sent his disciples off? Was he suddenly like, oh, wow, I'm so glad I did that. Phew, they would have really ruined this. Hello. He's pursuing this moment because he loves her. Every step he takes is motivated by love. We will not create a really open community if we don't actually love each other. Openness is just not just part of our religious checklist. Sometimes we get frustrated because we're talking to someone who isn't being real about their lives. I want to ask us, do we love them? Because sometimes we're demanding someone behave in a certain way, but if we're really honest, we don't really care about them that much. We're just annoyed that they're not living up to our expectations of honesty and truth. We have to be a people who are first full of love before we ask anything else before we demand or require anything else why because that's who he is that's exactly who we encounter when we encounter Jesus what time it is uh, is it I'm not wearing a watch so okay thank you we have to taste so that we can overflow I was struggling this week with some parenting decisions just struggling to, to be the mom that I dream of being, really being challenged in moments, finding myself responding to young children like I am a young child. And I was praying even this morning when I should have been preparing a sermon, praying, how do I do this, God? How do I do this? 
He said to me, you recover love. You're trying to find a strategy. You're trying to find, you need to recover love. Everything else flows from that place. We will not disciple this city if we have not recovered love. If you're trying to minister to someone, but you feel nothing in your heart for them, please walk away. Get on your knees before the Lord and say, let me encounter love so that that will become the wellspring of me. You can't conjure it. You can't try somehow really hard. Oh, I'm going to push really hard to love you. That's intense and weird. Please don't do that. Oh, but if we encounter him, John 15, love one another as I have loved you. He understands the recipe. Oh, we're messing around with the recipe for loving another. What does it take to love another? Let me insert all sorts of ingredients here. There's only one that the Bible says, an encounter with love. You're trying to insert all sorts of strategies. Maybe this Bible book will help me. Maybe this commentary will help me. I found a really good book over here on how to love and the five love languages. I'm not knocking that. None of that is ultimately the ingredient to being someone who overflows with love for other people. The only ingredient for that is encountering the one who loves us the most. Because every other kind of love will run dry. There's only one whose love personified. And if we encounter his love, we will start living, watering that love everywhere else. So if you're struggling with loving someone, encounter Jesus. Encounter Jesus and allow him to transform you. But what I find so fascinating here <coughs> is is this the very antithesis in this story to what the world would tell us allows people to feel free and to really be encouraged into opening up? The world tells us, lower the standard. Change the standard entirely. Let there be no standards. Everything goes, your truth, my truth. That will really help people open up. They feel safe. The problem the world says, is that there's this rigid structure of right and wrong. Do away with the structure, people feel free. Why is it then that this generation is so not free on the inside? All the boundaries have been destroyed. All the standards lie in ruins. Why is it that we're still shackled on the inside? Because we're not following the recipe. We're messing about with it and it will never lead to freedom because freedom is not about throwing something off out there. Freedom is about healing something in here. That's why it's very concerning when Christians say to me things like, I can do whatever I want because I'm free. You haven't understood freedom. Biblical freedom is never ever about throwing off external restraints. My rights, do you understand who I am? Daughter of God coming through. <laughs> Crippled inside. Biblical freedom, read Galatians. It's all about what's happening internally. 
That's why no amount of throwing aside every restraint will set you free. The world has tried it. It doesn't work. And that's why Christians, as Christians, we've got to stop being afraid of the truth. I feel like this is going to be one of the biggest battles for our generation. To be a church who is unashamed by biblical truth. To talk from our pulpits about what is true. What he says is truth. What he defines, not what I define. This is going to be a battle for us because Christians everywhere are being pulled into let's lower the standard to bring people in. You will bring people in, but you will not have the power to set them free. There's only one recipe to freedom. Love and truth. Remarkable in this moment. She finds belonging with the Holy One. Why? Because he loves her, but he doesn't shy away from the truth. There's no, oh, you know, I totally get it. Life is really hard. Uh, You know, those Old Testament rules, they're really archaic anyway. They don't really apply to our generation. God has also got wiser as time goes on, and he realizes those restraints are a little bit unhealthy. (laughs) Monogamy, that's just something that was in the past. We've evolved there's none of that. He's, he's kind of brutally honest. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. The guy you're living with, not your husband. There's no embarrassment on Jesus' part about the truth. He understands the only way to freeing her from years of shame isn't to say what you've done isn't bad. It's to say it's not bad, but it's to say it is bad, but come and find healing with me. That's the only way. You don't change the standard. You just introduce yourself and others to the God who sets us free in our brokenness. That's what we do. So I'm not going to mess about with a recipe. I'm not going to mess about with a standard of morality. I'm not going to mess about with monogamy. I'm not going to mess about with men and women marrying each other. I'm not going to mess about with any of this stuff. And I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed because I know that is the power to freedom. Oh, but do I love? Because both are needed. Love and truth and hand in hand. And he reveals himself to her as Messiah. And in that split second, she makes the decision. And what happens is she gets set free. And how do I know she gets set free? Because she goes into her town that she has avoided all of the time. And she says to them, come and see a man, what? Who revealed himself as Messiah? No. Who knew things about me? No. Who is the most amazing rabbi who I'd ever met because he talked to me? No. She spotlights her very area of shame to her entire city, who told me everything I ever did. That's how I know she got set free. She has tried to avoid the people who have hated everything she ever did, who have ridiculed everything she ever did, who have made her feel ostracized because everything she ever did. And she announces to her city, come and see him because spotlight on it, he told me absolutely everything. He is the Christ. 
Jesus doesn't just want to change you into some kind of robot version of yourself. He wants to free you from the shame that cripples you about things that you wish you'd never done, things that should never have been done to you, things that make you feel like you're choking on the inside. He's not going to lower the standard. He's not going to say, oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Those things kill people on the inside. What he's going to say is, this is the truth, but come and encounter me because I actually am the truth and I will set you free. This is what it means to be an open people. We're not going to be fake. We're not going to pretend. But together we're going to encounter a God of love and truth. We're going to allow our encounters of him to radically transform us so that we become a people who love each other before we minister to each other, before we say glib verses to each other because it's the easiest way to get rid of someone who's kind of bringing you down and so you just say uh, God is good all the time and move away and feel good about it. No, no, we're going to radically love each other and we're going to speak truth to one another. Table Boston, I am praying all the time since I've read these words. I am praying consistently, God, help me love our people. Before you, you're ministered to by me, before you feel that I'm preaching at you, I want you to know that I'm praying that God ignites radical love in me. But I want to promise you that love will not mean that I start saying to people, it's fine, don't worry. It's not a big deal. What's the recipe for freedom? Love and truth. Let's stand together. I want to just minister to a few people this morning. I spoke about shame a lot. God wants to heal us from shame. Shame is not just feeling bad about something you've done. It's just starting to feel like you are bad. It becomes your identity. It cripples you from the inside. I'm aware that there might be people in this room who've never encountered Jesus like I've described him. That you thought Christianity was really about being a good person. <laughs> that you thought Christianity was really about just following the rules somehow. Christianity is not about being a good person. Christianity is about meeting Jesus, who is God. And allowing him to transform us like this lady allowed him to transform her. Allowing his love and all that he says about himself to fully, radically shape you from the inside out. And so if you're someone in this room and you've never met Jesus like I'm describing, you've never experienced his love, you've never experienced truth in a way that doesn't make you feel more ashamed, but actually gives you hope for transformation, I want to encourage you today is a good day to meet Jesus. And we've got a whole team. They'll be wearing prayer badges. Guys, if you've got a prayer badge on, please just kind of make your way over. But we've got a team who would love to pray with you. If you've never met Jesus, we'd love to pray that today you meet Jesus because Jesus is alive and he is present in this room. And if you're someone who would say, I follow Jesus, I've met him before, but I know there is stuff in my heart that is still full of shame, I want to encourage you. We want to pray for you. We want to pray for you that you would meet afresh the radical love of the Father that would free you from shame.
You are not to live crippled with shame. And Table Boston, this is a mandate on us to refuse to be fake, to refuse the religious veneer, to refuse the judgmental attitude of religion, to refuse to be condescending and patronizing with what we feel is our superior morality, to refuse um, any kind of dishonesty about who we are ourselves, and to refuse to blur the lines. This is our mandate to be an open people in order to see many set free. So I'm just gonna pray. As I'm praying, you might not want to respond, but if you do, I wanna invite you, come receive prayer. Otherwise, I'm gonna close the meeting. Thank you so much for being with us. We are so grateful that you spent time with us. I pray for every single person that you would know the radical love of the Father over you this week. But I'm just gonna pray for all of us. Holy Spirit, We invite you, Spirit of God, Spirit who is love, Spirit who is truth. Come and meet with us afresh today. Holy Spirit, I ask you that you would overwhelm each and every person in this room with your love, radical, radical affection for each of us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come to speak to us today with your truth, that you would set us free inside out. And so in the name of Jesus, I break the back of shame in this place. We speak freedom over you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We speak freedom as the Spirit of love and truth encounters people in this place. We say, shame, you have no hold in this place. Shame, you have no hold in this community. But we look at the eyes of love and truth and we allow God himself to shape us inside out. And so come and receive prayer if you want. This meeting is, is officially closed. But we invite you to receive prayer. Amen. Guys, let's thank Katia just for a moment. This is the Sunday morning podcast from The Table Boston where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.